You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I am very thankful to be in this spiritual home, and when I was here in the fall with the women, Andrew asked me to name three things that I missed about the Advent, which was a loaded question, and I completely blanked on the third. I could not give you an answer, and now it seems so obvious. I miss Lent. No one does Lent quite like the Advent, and I am deeply honored to be here. In our two days together, we are going to look at John 7, at two of Jesus' speeches, one per day. Today, we're going to see the fruit of good intentions and self-reliance. John 7, verses 17 through 24. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The content of this speech tells us that Jesus is largely addressing the Pharisees. And so automatically we think we don't identify. You learned in Sunday school that the Pharisees were the self-righteous. They were the fundamentalist. We define the modern Pharisee as anyone who is less enlightened than we are. Therefore, it can't be us. Maybe you used to be a Pharisee, but not anymore. There's a great irony to this way of thought because you have perhaps noticed that very often there's no one more fundamentalist than the ex-fundamentalist. It's just a changing out of the bumper stickers. Someone who has a lot of bumper stickers on their car is always going to have a lot of bumper stickers on the car, regardless of what they say. I think we do far better for all of us to acknowledge that we have some Pharisee inside of us, some lingering voice of demand and regulations in our old flesh. That, and that voice, what that voice tells us we must do or, or must not do might change by the decades, but it's there. It's there. And this means that if we look at ourselves long enough, we're going to find that we can relate 
to the anger of the Pharisees. I want to help you locate that anger, because if we can find that anger, we're going to better appreciate what Jesus is saying here. So I'm going to start by giving you some sympathy for the Pharisees. Their spiritual lineage goes back to a time in Israel's history when there was a mad dictator who put prostitutes in the temple. And that really happened. Can you imagine something like that happening between the stained glass of these hallowed walls? He burned the book of Moses, the book of the law. He forbade circumcision. He forced Jews to work on the Sabbath. These are the very things that Jesus is talking about right here in these words. And so in that time of of persecution, there were Jews who lost their lives because they would not comply. And in the years that followed, you you had these conservators of the law who who looked back on these martyrs. They were the heroes. heroes. They They were the role models Now, through all of this, during all these years of of foreign occupation in Israel, there were other Jews who were more adaptive. They flourished under Greek rule and then Roman rule through compromise. For them, the book of the law, it was a little bit antiquated, you know, some good platitudes in there. Or, Or maybe it was a mystical book, and you could just allegorize the laws and even the history that were there. When following the law is inconvenient in a literal sense, you can always just spiritualize it. And so by Jesus's day, you've probably heard there were all these various parties of of Jews, but it really came down to two categories. There were two kinds of Jews. You had that that group that had sold out and had prospered financially and politically. And then there was that category to whom the Pharisees belonged, who had followed the law as they understood it at personal cost. I think I would like to align myself with that group. So far, I would say it looks like they're on the right side of history. These were down-to-earth people. They were hard workers who also valued higher education. They were family people. They asked, how do you follow the law of Moses in a changing world? How do you keep Emily Post in a digital age? What's the translation? And so what they did was was they put their heads together and, and they came up with thousands of concrete answers. This is what we call tradition, and it was upheld by the authority of the rabbis. This was sort of like the Christian life section of the bookstore. You you have questions. How do I be a godly parent? How much screen time is too much? The Pharisees would have told you, and, and don't you want that? When you really have a question, don't you want to be told? And so, Whatever imperfections the Pharisees may have had, we can at least say they gave very practical answers that fit into every day of your everyday life. Now, after these centuries of just truly keeping this law and expending great amounts of energy on this law, what did they want from the coming 
Messiah. What did they want? Validation. Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. And so along comes Jesus, and and he's doing the things that a Messiah does. The crowd at the temple knew that. But he wasn't quoting their rabbis. This was like turning in a research paper without footnotes. He he spoke with an authority that, that went beyond the academy. And he said the most extraordinary impossible thing to them. He said the one thing to them that they could not bear. None of you keeps the law. None of you keeps the law. Well, hold up. It's those Jews over there who are going to sporting events and birthday parties on the Sabbath. They're the ones not keeping the law. And as far as the Pharisees could tell, Jesus wasn't keeping it either. Now, here's the thing, and this is often misunderstood. Jesus did observe the law of Moses. He did this perfectly, every jot, every mark. He just didn't observe it according to the prescriptions of tradition. And so at this point, the Pharisees could no longer distinguish their tradition from the law of Moses. Their tradition had become so torturous, it had strangled the love out of the law until the the, the law was mangled into something else altogether. This strangling of love became the strangling of their own discernment to the point that they could no longer rightly judge between good and evil. And then in this moment where God's own son is standing before them, they say, you have a demon. So the question for us is this. How do you get there? How does any person who who is seemingly trying to do the right thing, how does anyone get there? Was it just a matter of overthinking? I, I had a coach say to me once, Lisa, sometimes I give you a simple correction and you break it down into 500 pieces and do worse. Was that it? It was something far more serious. What happened came from a cancer that we all have deep down in our flesh beneath our good intentions. That cancer is doubt. Not doubt that God exists, but doubt of his mercy. When you doubt God's mercy, you can't afford to make a wrong move. So the Pharisees had to have a formula for every situation in order to cover their bases. Now, we're too modern to say that we would want a formula. We know better life isn't a formula. And furthermore, we're Christians. We're not under the law. I mean, we're certainly not under tradition. But we do have this little, lingering, tricky Pharisee inside of us 
who puts the idea in terms that we can accept. I just want to get it right. That's all I want. I just want to get things right. I just want some guidelines. This is what we tell ourselves. And and I do want to be clear, we do need help in our life. We do need guidance in our life. And, And I would also like to say that Rooted the ministry that y'all have here for for parents and those who serve children and youth is life. It is blessing. And the podcasts are circulating around Columbia right now. We need this. That being said, I can also tell you that there is something I had to realize about myself as a parent— I realized this in a very particular moment in 2014. I realized that beneath my good desire to be a good parent, there was also a desperation to get it right. Because I did not trust God's mercy for my children. So what happens is that we want to be told. I would have fallen at the feet of anyone who could have given me some way of writing the script for my kids so that nothing nothing goes off the wheels. Now, we can do this in all sorts of ways. We can do this in ministry. I am certain that right now, even the most free-spirited of ministers would have been glad this past year to have in their hand a manual the size of a telephone book on how to pastor a church through a pandemic. What has happened instead is a very vulnerable thing. Leadership has had to depend not on something learned in a class, but on the Lord's anointing. We do this in our daily life. We do this in all sorts of ways. We have a decision to make. Do I move to that town? Do I confront that friend? What do I do here? We, we go to people that we think are wise, and we should, and in much counsel there is safety, but sometimes we, are, we, we just want to be told precisely what to do because we're petrified that whatever decision we make, whatever move we make, wherever it leads, that somehow, in some way, God's grace won't be sufficient. I want to tell you all about the worst mug I ever saw. All of this, all of that I'm saying is pictured in this one really terrible mug. I actually found it in a clergy cottage. On the front were these cartoon birds, baby birds perched on the edge of a nest, getting ready for their first flight. In this, in this fat cursive font were the words, God gives us a push, dot, dot, dot. And then you flip to the back and it says, after that, it's up to us to keep going. I imagine this was a gift mug. It, it had a Hallmark feel to it. What I can't imagine is, in, is being in any situation that I would actually want to give that message to someone. A, a graduate, someone becoming a parent, someone starting a new job. God gives you a push, and now it's all up to you. Don't blow it. That ground hits hard. This is the core belief of the Pharisees 
And and if there's no certainty uh, of a soft fall, what can you do but flap your wings until that itself kills you? Your flight is going to be away from God because as surely as you run toward those people who feel safe and comfortable and, and loving, you keep your distance from people that you perceive as uncaring or hostile. The chasm grows, love dies, the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. The trajectory of our hearts hinges completely on who we imagine God to be. And you know this, you know this, but but often we struggle because we're not exactly sure how to picture God. You've heard God is love, and you've also heard, rightly, that he is a God of vengeance. And, And so when one truth is clear, maybe the other one gets a little bit fuzzier, you, you end up with these caricatures. You know, either God is that parent who was never quite pleased, or what's even scarier to me, that pushover who winks at sin. It might seem as if coming up with a, a single, comprehensive, true picture of God were complicated. The truth is, it's, it's really very easy And it's been given to us in history. It is a picture so simple, a child could draw it. It's two lines, the horizontal and the vertical. It is here in the cross of Christ that the wrath of God against our sin and the mercy of God to all who will receive it come together in perfect, infinite unity. This is the picture of God that hangs over us in our daily decisions, a suffering Christ. This is who hangs over our family, over our work, over our ministry, over our friendships, over all of it. This is the picture. And so what happens happens is is our failures, our our missteps, our our failed good intentions, our flat-out sin that we have maybe intentionally walked into, all of this is collected in the cross. and, And what does this leave us with? This leaves us with freedom, with God's favor, This leaves us resting in the hand of God, not because God's hand catches us when we fall, but because he's holding us all the time. Now, if you're on this path of self-reliance, that trajectory is not permanent. If it were, Jesus would not have spoken so strongly to the Pharisees. You realize that he did this in love. He roused their anger in order to wake them. None of you keeps the law. That's an alarm clock. That was an alarm clock. And there were some Pharisees who would wake. Now, what does the new morning actually look like? And that's what we're going to look at tomorrow. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at Advent.